Now, we live in a day where we seemingly have to prop up the word Christian. By the way, it's a word used only three times in the New Testament. So we speak of born-again Christians to distinguish them from, say, a nominal Christian. But I want to tell you, is not every Christian born again? Of course they are. If a person is really a Christian, then they are born again. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part three in the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, An Introduction to the Gospel of John. We have seen that John was convinced that Jesus was God, and we have examined the opening sentence in which he talks about Jesus being the Word. As we continue today, we find John referring to Jesus also as the light. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now the world is described here in this first chapter as being in spiritual darkness. And you see it everywhere. There's the darkness of the religious mind. So many religions today ignore the Lord Jesus Christ, the source. And very often even wise and intelligent people will embrace all kinds of falsehood. I was watching on public TV on Friday night. We don't have much selection. We get a couple of channels, but we get public TV. And there was this fellow, Wayne Dyer, on there. Have you ever seen him? Bald guy, kind of a religious philosopher. I mean, this guy is out in left field. And he's got this massive audience of intelligent people, thinking people, who, mm, this is good, yeah, really. It's so far from the truth. It was absolute heresy what the man was preaching. There's not only the darkness of the religious mind, there's the darkness of the philosophical mind. Those who ignore the Lord Jesus Christ, and they speculate all about life. And there's certainly the darkness of the scientific mind, who finds life in a big bang in the creation rather than the creator himself. But in him, the Bible says, is light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, this word comprehend is an interesting word. It literally means to take down, to write down. Uh, Maybe you could picture it in these terms. Suppose you have a sixth grader whose mathematical skills go as far as long division and multiplication. And then a college professor comes into lecture on the subject of calculus. And so he listens to the uh, the, the lecture on calculus, but he just can't take it in. He just can't take it down. Now, people are like that. That's the point. They cannot comprehend it. Someone said to me, boy, pastor, before I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, I was in darkness. I don't know why. I just couldn't see. The reason you couldn't see is because you're in darkness. The darkness just can't comprehend it. The darkness just can't take it in. That's why God has to open your eyes. And that will be a major teaching that John will give. And when you understand this as a Christian, I want to tell you, before you talk to men, you'll talk to God. It will cause you to fall on your knees because you recognize that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draw him. And so only God can open your eyes to the light. Now, there's something that's true of spiritual light that's not true of physical light. Um, my family and I, a number of years ago, visited a place in North Carolina called Linville Caverns. Anybody been there? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah, a handful of you here and there. Well, if you've ever been there, at least when we went, it was a family-run business, and it was a rainy day and not a whole lot to do. And so we went and visited this place, and 
they brought us to the cavern and they brought us down into the deepest, darkest bowels of the cavern. And, and then the tour guide said, now, for some of you, you're going to experience something that you've never experienced before in your whole life and that you may never possibly experience again. And for me, that was the first time I experienced it. And it was the last time I ever experienced. And he said, I'm going to turn off the lights. And he said, you will be in absolute total darkness. He turned off the lights, and he was right. I mean, I took my hand, and I waved it in front of my face, and I could not see it. Little gray Santa, she's only about seven at the time. Who turned off the lights? And, and then Jordan said, I got to film this, and he turned on the video camera. And as soon as he turned it on, light came into that cavern. The minute the light came in, the darkness went out. But in the spiritual realm, it's possible to have both spiritual darkness and spiritual light side by side. Sometimes there's a husband who's saved and the wife is not. Or maybe there's a saved man at work and next to him is an unsaved man. And he says, I don't understand why you don't believe I'm a Christian. I'm a good person. I live right. Doesn't that make me a Christian? And you tell him all over again and he just can't see it. He just can't comprehend it. That's what John is saying. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. So here is Christ, God of very God, the creator, life itself, the source of all light, the light of man. That's his supernatural character. Now he goes on and he begins in kernel form and he's going to unfold it in his whole gospel. But he introduces us here to Christ's supernatural work. Now, God doesn't want men to stay in the darkness. The Bible says he wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. First Timothy 2, 5 says God desires all men to be saved. He wants men to be saved. He wants to save them. And throughout the Holy Scripture, we find God comes to the rescue. God takes the initiative to open man's spiritual eyes. Now, initially, he does it through what theologians refer to as general revelation. That is, that revelation, that information that is generally known to all men, whoever they are in the face of the earth, through creation and through conscience. And so Paul will say in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, his divine power, his eternal nature are clearly seen through what he has made. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? Because the Bible says he has clearly spoken in creation. But Paul also argues God has not only spoken in creation around us, but he has spoken from our conscience within. He says the Gentiles, the pagans, who don't have the written law of God, they're a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, either accusing them or defending them. So they do what's right, and their conscience says, good man. You do what's wrong, your conscience says, you're guilty. Bad boy. Don't do it. But general revelation, which God gives to all men, is not enough to save you. You need specific revelation. You need the gospel. And this is typically what theologians refer to as specific light or specific revelation. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that there are some men who will never get the gospel in this life. And some non-Christians will say, ah, oh, you Christians, you say there's salvation in no one else, as Peter said. You say that Jesus is the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're bigoted. You mean to tell me that God's going to send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he's never heard? That seems unjust and unkind. I don't accept that kind of God. Well, number one, God doesn't send someone to hell for having never believed in a Savior in whom he never heard. God sends him to hell because he's rejected the revelation that he has been given. 
all men have general revelation. And the principle that's taught in this gospel and in other places, but we'll see it in the 12th chapter, that light responded to brings more light. That when you respond to the light that God has given you, he'll give you more light. But some men never get the gospel because they don't respond to the revelation God has given them. By the way, God practices what he preaches. He tells me in the Sermon on the Mount that I am not to cast my pearl before swine. That is, when there's an utter contempt for the holy things of God, God says, be quiet. Don't tell him anymore. Withhold the gospel pearl. And God does it himself. Very often, God will withhold truth from a man because he has not responded to the light that God has given to him. But God wants to give men light, and so we're introduced to John the Baptist here in verse 6. Notice, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John was no angel. He had no spark of divinity. He was just a man, but he had an extraordinary call. He was sent from God. Now, by no means did he fit the prescribed mold of his day. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a Heronian. He was not a priest. He was not a Levite. He was not a scribe. He didn't look religious. He didn't even smell religious. But verse 7 says precisely why he came. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John came as a witness to turn people around so they could see the light. Now, it's rather interesting that God referred to John with this specialized word for witness. It's the Greek word martyria. We get our English word directly from it, martyr, because a martyr is what John was. Webster defines a martyr as one who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty for witnessing. And you know that's what happened to John the Baptist. He had his head cut off for preaching the truth. He came as a witness, but he became a martyr. And if you've read the other Gospels, you know that he did not come with all the trappings of pomp and ceremony. He just did what believers are supposed to do. He pointed men to the Lord Jesus Christ. In modern evangelical terms, we would say he was one beggar showing other beggars where they can find bread. Now, notice of him. It goes on and it says in verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John is not the true light, and the apostle wants to make that clear. Christ is the true light. John was the lamp, not the light. He was the wick, not the flame. He came to bear witness of the light, of the one here described as coming into the world. Now, the word world here has many different usages in the New Testament. And of course, context always uh, determines its meaning. Very often it refers to the universe. But plainly here it refers not to a place, but to people. Verse 10 tells us that the world did not know or recognize him. This is a reference here to people. It's a reference to the human race for whom Christ came. Now it would be a great mistake to say that the very first visit Christ ever made into this world was there at that Bethlehem major. No, the one who made the world never left the world. He's not some kind of absentee landlord ever since the creation, ever since he made it. Colossians says he has sustained it. And the scripture says he enlightens every human person. There's a sense in which he has enlightened every man, first through creation and conscience and general revelation. But as he will also say in John 16, through the work of the Holy Spirit. He promised when he, 
the Spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the great tragedy, though, is that the world very often will not and did not recognize him. Notice verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. The world didn't recognize him. Now, the world will often congratulate itself on what they believe is superior wisdom, on their own enlightenment, but they did not know him, which is really a picture of the rebellious nature of man. It is a picture of the hardness of man's heart. He's like a stone. He's like a piece of sculpture that will not respond to the sculptor, to the creator who wants him to see. And so when he came to the world, the world did not know him. But not only did the world not know him, his own people did not know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, according to verse 9, the light was coming into the world, which really describes a continual process. But in verse 11 and 12, he's describing here a decisive event. Verses 9 and 10 describe all of God's work before Christ came into the world. Verses 11 and 12 describe a specific time frame right up to the very present. Now, follow it here. When Jesus came to his own people, his own received him not. When he came to the nation of Israel, the Jew they did not embrace him. Now, you would have thought they would have embraced him, that they would have recognized him. I mean, God had prepared them for centuries. There were two millennia from Abraham to Christ. You would have thought they would have claimed him. They would have welcomed him. They would have enthroned him, that they would have sat down and worshiped before him, but they did not. He came to his own, and his own received him not, and they did not receive him for the same reason they did not receive the prophets. Not because they lacked light, but because they would not respond to the light that they had. And so they did not come to the true light. They just embraced the copies of light. Oh, they were content with the copies. Oh, they had the law of Moses. They had the sacrificial system. They had the temple, and with that they were satisfied. But they could not understand that Jesus was the Messiah, as he will point out later in this gospel, because they didn't want to. They could not believe the Bible says, because they would not believe. There was a decision in their heart that Jesus will describe, that Paul will explain in his epistle to the Romans, because they were self-righteous. They had a zeal for God, Paul says, but not in accordance with knowledge. And they rejected Christ as the Savior of the world for the same reason men do today. They don't see their need for a Savior. They feel like everything's okay between them and their God that they're good enough to somehow be accepted before a holy, infinite God when God says they are not. So throughout this gospel, the Lord Jesus will teach that he is the fulfillment of the law, that it's not enough to be born a Jew. You must be born again. It's not enough to witness his works and to see his miracles and to hear his words. You must come in faith to him. And so here were the Jewish people. He came to his own, but his own received him not. They chose not to walk in his way. Oh, he was the truth, but they chose not to believe what he said. He was the life, but they crucified him. But that did not stop God. Those who heard and did not believe did not stop the work of God, verse 12. But, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, some of your translations say, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power. And that was certainly a good translation in the 17th century. 
But the word power here is not dunamis. It's not speaking of physical power like dynamite. It's speaking of spiritual power, of delegated authority. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right, the authority, the delegated power to become children of God. To those who welcomed him, to those who opened the portals of their heart, he gave the right to become. You ought to circle that, underscore it in your Bible, that word become, because it indicates a change of status. He gave them the right to become children of God. Now, some of them were Jews and some of them were Gentiles. National origin was of no consequence. The important thing is that they had received him and the world had rejected him and for the most part, his own people. The point he's going to make in John 8 is it's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. You must receive the one God made flesh. And so God says when you receive him, he gives you the right to become, he gives you a new status before him, a child of God. Now, I know preachers very often, even politicians, they'll refer to humanity in a very general sense as children of God. That we're all children of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are not all children of God. Now, I suppose in a creative sense, we are and that we're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. But the Bible is very clear that until you receive Christ, God does not give you the authority, the right to become one of his children. Now, we live in a day where we seemingly have to prop up the word Christian. By the way, it's a word used only three times in the New Testament. So we speak of born-again Christians to distinguish them from, say, a nominal Christian. But I want to tell you, is not every Christian born again? Of course they are. If a person is really a Christian, then they are born again. I was speaking to a man recently, and I don't usually ask this question, but we weren't getting very far, so I finally said, are you a born-again Christian? He said, no, I'm not that variety. <laughs> well, then you're not the variety that you need to get into the kingdom of God. Three times over, he said, you must be born again. And so, as we will see, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus, when you believe in his name, God gives you the right, the power, the designated authority because the Spirit of God comes and lives in your bosom. He puts the life of God in you. He makes you a new creation and He makes you a child of God. Now follow here this verse that is so common to most of us, but we haven't always thought it through. As many as received Him, that phrase is equated in the original. It's like an equal sign in the Greek. To receive Him equals believing in His name. Now, the word even is actually even not in the original. It's inserted in there to smooth out the English so it won't be so wooden. You could translate it, but as many as received him, that is, or in other words, to those who believed in his name, God has given the right or the authority or the power to become a child of God. The point is, is to receive him is to believe in his name. Now, we live in a day of cheap grace and fake decisions. They're everywhere. Oh, you want to be saved? Just pray this prayer. Bite Jesus into your heart. By the way, the Bible nowhere ever admonishes a man to invite Christ into their heart. But just pray this prayer and you'll be in the kingdom of God. No, God equates receiving Christ with believing in his name. And the name of God, not just in this gospel, but throughout the Bible, stands for all that God is. The totality of his person, both in his character and in his work. And there are many people today who know the plan of salvation, but they've not embraced the man of salvation because they've separated the work of God from the person of God. 
Now, this gospel is unique in some respects in that nowhere in this gospel do you ever see the word repent. And yet the Lord Jesus said, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. He said there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who needs repentance than over 99 sinners who have no need for repentance. Repentance is very important, but while you do not find the word in here, you will find the concept. We will see it all the way through the gospel of John that when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe in his name, that you believe all that he stands for, that you cannot separate his work from his person. And yet so many people today just want fire insurance. They want to embrace Christ that they need not go to hell, but they really don't want him as Lord, as king. They do not want to enthrone them on the, the, in their hearts. And so Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? you don't do the things that I say. You cannot separate his work from his person. If you want genuine, born-again Christianity that is going to change you from the inside out, you must come and embrace him as both Lord and Savior. You must believe in his name. Now notice too here, he uses the preposition in. Throughout the New Testament, when God describes true, genuine faith, he typically accompanies it with the word in. Not always. There are some other prepositions that are used. But it's kind of like this. The other prepositions, by the way, here is on, E-N, if you transliterate it, in. Sometimes it's ace, E-I-S, transliterated into, or epi, E-P-I, meaning on or upon. And throughout the Bible, when God describes real faith, you either believe in, into, upon, or on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like this chair on the platform. I could say, well, I believe in this chair, but obviously at this moment, this chair is not holding me up. That's simply an intellectual assent to truth. But when I get in the chair and I say, I believe in the chair, now I'm relying on the chair. Now I'm putting my trust in the chair, my confidence in the chair for it to sustain me. And so the question you must ask is, do you believe a lot about the Lord Jesus or do you believe in the Lord Jesus? If you are trusting him to save you, he will give you a second birth, a birth from above. It's not enough to intellectualize him. Scores do in evangelicalism today and they've never really been changed. And so the first, the second birth is further described here in verse 13. Notice, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but as God. No, three negatives. You ought to circle them there in your Bible. Not, nor, nor. Not of blood, because the new birth is not the same as physical birth. Nor the will of the flesh, because you cannot achieve it by your own effort. Nor the will of man, because no one else can do it for you. No one else can dictate your salvation. No one else can declare you saved. But of God, because the new birth is a work of the grace of God. Now, verse 12 describes what we must do. We must do. Verse 13 describes what God will do when you come in faith. So he pictures before us here in the introduction to his gospel three categories of people. There is this vast pool of humanity that he terms as the world. In some sense, all of the world has been enlightened by Christ, but up until this time, they have not embraced him. And then he describes a second group here, his own people. And maybe you're here today. We have about a half a dozen Jewish believers in our congregation, Hebrews, who have believed that the Lord Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel. And perhaps you're here today and you're Jewish, you're a descendant of Abraham, 
but you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. I want to tell you as a Jew, you are a member of the most privileged nation on the face of the earth. God has enormously privileged you. But don't mistake those privileges for your need to receive Jesus Christ in order to become a child of God. Or maybe you are in the third category. As many as received him, to them he has given the authority to become a child of God. Maybe you are a child of God. You say, I don't know if I'm a child of God. If you don't know, you're not. You can't have it and not know it. When you have salvation, the Spirit bears witness with your human spirit that you've become a child of God. Do you have it? If you haven't, you want to, you'll want it. I hope you will. God wants you to have it, but He'll never force it on you. You must come like a child in simple faith. Embrace Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning for this introduction into this wonderful gospel, and we pray that you would give us the grace if the Lord Jesus does not come back to study it, not for information's sake, but for life change, that we might learn it and let its truth vibrate in our hearts that we might be changed forever. How grateful we are for this one who stepped out of heaven, laid aside all of the glory of heaven, that we might beheld his glory here on earth, that we might see the one God in human flesh. We, through the eye of faith today, through the written word, and we thank you for him, the one who's come. I pray today, Father, for someone who has never embraced him in faith. They're uncertain if this were their last day on earth that they would go to heaven with you. You promised because of the work of your son who dealt with all of our sin that whoever will call on his name will be saved. You promised to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Thank you that you can make that promise because of our substitute who bore in his own body all of our wrath that we could be forgiven. But you said that no man can come to you but through Christ. And so I pray today that you'd help someone in simple faith to take you at your word, that you won't lie, that they will take you in faith for what you said. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Maybe that's you today in the sound of my voice. And I wonder if you would say to him, Lord Jesus, save me. Could you say that in faith? Would you embrace him as your Lord and Savior? Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me? And because you've saved me, as you commanded, I will publicly, unashamedly confess you before men. Father, help us to be unashamed of this one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Help us to know him better in these days through a life of obedience, through the promises that you give that you will disclose yourself to us as we keep his commandments. We pray as the people of God that we would become grounded in sound theology through our study of this gospel, but even so that we would grow in an intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John. Zero, zero, one. There is no friendship that is more important than friendship with God. It is a relationship with eternal consequences, and the greatest act of care and concern you can ever show someone is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. If you have never shared Christ with anyone, or if it has been a while since you have done so, 
We would like to help. Dr. Brogy has written a booklet that highlights five principles that are fundamental to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you like to know God as your friend begins with a number of diagnostic questions and concludes with a presentation of the gospel message. These booklets will really simplify sharing your faith. And now we will send you 50 of these booklets as our thanks for a gift of any amount to search the scriptures. Call us today at 877-787-7478 and ask for the Would You Like to Know God is Your Friend gift pack. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.